Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. We're here every Saturday, 12 noon, 3CR, 855 on the AM dial, to defend and to promote public education. And we make no apology for the definition we give you. It is public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is public in access. That is true public education, open to all children, whoever they are, from wherever they come, whatever their parents' bank balance, whatever their parents' religious belief. All children are equal for us in the public system. Now, the public system should also have schools which are owned and controlled by the state and it should be state-funded and should be the only one that is state-funded because it is the only one that is accountable. And above all, our governments, if they are proper democratic governments, should make available to every child a first-class public education system throughout the state. Now, as well as that, the dogs are very concerned about the corollary to sole state funding of public education and a healthy public education system, which is separation of church and state. And we did have it. We had it here for 80 years in Australia until 1964 when state aid to private schools started again and until 1981 when this was made official by the uh, reading down and out of the uh, Australian Constitution of Section 116. Section 116 of our Constitution was based upon the First Amendment in the United States. And until the Reagan era, the uh, American Supreme Court went back to the Founding Fathers and looked at what they said and held the line. They held what is called the uh, wall of separation between church and state in America. But there is a new book out, uh, and I'll tell you the name of it. Uh, This book is called God, Schools and Government Funding by Lawrence H. Weiner and Nina J. Krim. Uh, And it's just out now, 2015. And a review of it has been written by Ed Durr, who is from the American... Um, religious liberty organisation in the United States. Uh, you can have a look at his website at rlink.org.au. No, I'm sorry, it's rlink, A-R-L-I-N-C, dot org. It's an American one, it's not uh, an Australian one. It's www.arlinc.org. 
uh, and Ed Durr is the president of that organisation and he has written this review. And this is what he says, and we've put it up on our press release 594 on our website at www.adogs.info. Separation of church and state is the wall crumbling. Ed Durr's column from America. The establishment of religion, he says, the clause of the First Amendment, the Supreme Court ruled in 1947 in Everson versus the Board of Education, means at least this. Neither a state nor a federal government can pass laws which aid one religion, aid all religions or prefer one religion over another. And no tax in any amount, large or small, can be levied to support any religious activities or institutions, whatever they may be called, of whatever form they may adopt to teach or practice religion. In the words of Jefferson, the clause against establishment of religion by law was intended to erect a wall of separation between church and state. That wall must be kept high and impregnable we would not approve the slightest breach. So that was the Supreme Court in 1947, which the dogs took very seriously and thought that the the High Court of Australia should take seriously, but which they wanted very badly to ignore. Uh, This was put, this First Amendment was put into the Bill of Rights of the American Constitution in 1791. And uh, Jefferson was very much behind it. Now, the First Amendment also owes much to James Madison's magnificent seminal 1985 memorial and remonstrance against religious assessments, which among a list of 15 arguments for church-state separation made this important point. Who does not see that the same authority which can force a citizen to contribute three pence only of his property for the support of any one establishment may force him to conform to any other establishment in all cases whatever? And listeners, at the moment in Australia, we as taxpayers are being asked not to contribute three pence, but to contribute hundreds of millions, indeed billions and billions of dollars every year to establishments which are run by religious groups, religious establishments. Benjamin Franklin put it even more sharply years earlier. When a religion is good, he wrote, I conceive it will support itself. And when it does not support itself, and God does not take care to support it, so that its professors or adherents are obliged to call for help of the civil power, it's a sign, I apprehend of its being a bad one. Now, the American courts generally stuck to Jefferson, Madison, Everson's position for many years. And and it was so in Australia too. There were cases in Australia uh, earlier in the century, in the 20th century, where the High Court um, uh, found on Section 116 in a fairly strong way. But 1981, they emasculated it. Now, the situation heated up. When in 1965, the Congress in America passed the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which quite unnecessarily, according to Leo Pfeffer, included some tax aid to sectarian private schools. And legal challenges were not immediately forthcoming because of a 1924 Supreme Court precedent that blocked mere taxpayers from having standing to bring lawsuits 
And this happened, of course, with the dogs. We were kept out of the court for 15 years. The standing question was settled by the Supreme Court in 1968 in the Flask v. Cohen case challenging New York State tax aid to faithful, faith-based schools. The court approved taxpayer standing but upheld, unfortunately, the state law. And it was not until 1971 in Lemon v. Kurtzman that the Supreme Court ruled against state aid to church schools in Pennsylvania and Rhode Island. As late as 1991, in a joint ARL-ACLU lawsuit, the ARL is the American for Religious Liberties, and um, Ed Durr was part of that. In Lamont versus Woods, the United States Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York unanimously found unconstitutional a Reagan-era law that provided United States funding for faith-based schools in other countries. Uh, The George H. Bush administration declined to appeal to the Supreme Court, so the ruling was left standing. But all the same, change was in the wind, and after Reagan's election in 1980, the Supreme Court began drifting away from Everson, largely because, of course, of the kind of appointments that Reagan made onto the Supreme Court people like Scalia and others. Until today, a slim majority of the justices have not only eviscerated both Everson and Flast, but have thumbed their noses at Madison, Jefferson, Franklin and the majority of the constitutional founders. And the whole story, this whole story, is told in an extraordinary new book by these two law professors, Winner and Krim in God, Schools and Government Funding. And if you want to read more about what they have to say, then you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. I'll read that again. www.adogs.info and go to our press release 594. Thank you very much, Jean. You've been listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. It's Jean and myself, Rob, in the studio today, defending government schools as we do at this time every week. Now, Jean's been talking about things that have been happening in the United States, and later on in the program we'll be hearing from Ross Gittens, the economics editor of The Age and The Herald Sun, not the Herald Sun, the Sydney Morning Herald up there in Sydney. He's one of those Fairfax journalists. He's got some very interesting things about the the money-go-round of private education. But before we go to sort of bigger picture ideas, let's look at exactly what's happening here in the state of Victoria because there's starting to be some people that are very annoyed, at least as annoyed as we've been for the decades, at least as annoyed as the dogs have been about what's going on with education. And the people that are annoyed um, are the principals. The principals of state schools have actually in Victoria now decided they've had enough. Everyone's been promising things to them in terms of Gonski funding over year on year on year, and it just hasn't turned up. And they've actually spit the dummy. They have decided to march upon Parliament. Eighty principals from around Victoria have decided to go to Parliament, talk to their local members, and tell them that fair is fair. If we're supposed to be living in the land of the fair go, then state schools need enough money to function properly. At the moment, they're not getting them. They're particularly annoyed because one of the first things, as Jean pointed out, one of the first things the Labor government here in the state of Victoria did when they got in was to give private schools over well over $100 million just because. And the next thing they did was they tied the private school funding to a 
locked in 25% of state school funding. Now you go, oh, well, that's good. Private schools only get a quarter of the amount of state schools. No, 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 that, that's just state school funding. The federal government, as we all know, contributes the majority of money to private schools. So it's just one large pocket of a very large coat of money that goes to private schools. And the state school principals have now pretty much just had enough. In fact, the Australian Education Union, who in, in usually are fighting school principals because they're the people that represent teachers, or when I say fighting, I'm sure they work together in many constructive ways, but the Australian Education Union has noted on the 15th of April in a press release that principals from around the state will take their message directly to the local members of parliament. Um, and that was on that day, after waiting long enough for the Andrews government to deliver funding certainty for their schools. Now, more than 70, and I've heard up to 80 public school principals will meet with local members at Parliament House on the 15th of April to make it clear that the public education funding crisis, and it is now a crisis, must be addressed. And these are the words of Meredith Pierce, the Australian Education Union uh, Victorian branch president. Now, she said, and I quote, this is Meredith Pierce, Principals have volunteered to take coordinated action because teachers in their schools are managing day in, day out without resources they currently need. Children in our public school system have missed out and school principals are now saying this cannot continue. Now, school principals are historically and quite rightly reluctant to play politics because that's not really their job. The school principal is to manage a local state school to the best of their ability and for them to get involved in politics takes a great deal of pressure. Meredith Pierce says, again, and this is a quote, this delegation of principals to Parliament was arranged in response to concern from school communities. Principals have been in limbo for long enough. They need to be able to plan to deliver programs for kids that most need assistance. Now, despite moving swiftly to guarantee 25% of state funding to Catholic and independent schools, um, there's been no commitment at all by the Premier, Daniel Andrews, to fix the public education funding crisis. Meredith Pierce says the state government justifies passing the legislation to boost the money that goes to private schools, which is a serious departure from the principles of Gonski. Because the principles of Gonski, even though here at the Dogs we don't think it's in any way an adequate solution to the problem, the principles of Gonski are that money should go to kids who need it. And private school kids, in the broader picture of education in Australia, are not the people that need extra funding from the state government. It's the state school kids, and it's not just here at the Dogs saying it, it's the principals. It's even got to the point, because this is a crisis, that the Herald Sun's weighed into this particular debate, and the Herald Sun has to say that about this question that the Save Our Schools organisation, the Australian Education Union, have come together and in a survey of 725 principals across the nation, Victoria stands out as the state most dependent on community fundraising more than any other state, with 70% of principals saying it was very important to the basic maintenance of a state school. 52% in Victoria said a chunk of the money went to, well, if you're doing lamington stalls and doing fundraising schools, what would you expect it to go to? You'd expect it to go to the education of your children, but in Victoria it's not. Fundraising that's done by the school community has to go in Victoria in large cases, in large number of cases, more than half, to just basic maintenance of the buildings. 
Now, the fifth figure, by the way, is much lower in other states. 16% in Queensland, 20% in South Australia, and 23% in New South Wales. But in Victoria, over half the money that's raised by the school community doesn't go to education. It just goes to stop the roofs leaking. That's the job, I would have to say, of the government. Now, Kevin Pope mentions that at his school, Meadowhoats Primary School, he said he knew of schools that had raised $100,000 in an annual fate, but his community, eight of, 80% of whom lived on extremely low wages, worked hard just to raise 8000 It went on bilingual books, excursions, and, of course, the maintenance of his school. He says, I've got a grounds budget from the government for his school for the year of $3,700. He says that doesn't even mow the lawn four times a year. He says, I can't afford a gardener or a maintenance person, so we as a school have to have working bees. Now, the Meadow Heights has 50 classrooms, 50 classrooms, and their maintenance budget for 50 classrooms is $13,000 a year. That's not even, he said, the bill for plumbing. Now, the AEU calculated that under the needs-based Gonski funding model, Meadow Heights would be eligible for another $880,000 a year. I'm sure that would solve the principal's problem. He's not going to Meadow Heights. No, the first thing the state government did was make sure that the money goes somewhere else, to private schools, which I'm sure was spent on the arms race, which private schools seems to be indulging in, particularly in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Yes, so the teachers' unions, which are always seeming to, seeming to be, apart from the dogs and a few other activist groups in Australia and here in Victoria, are the only people that seem to have public education interests at heart, are being joined by the principals. But there's actually a larger problem, and again, talking about the money, I'd like to um, introduce Jean again to discuss something that Ross Gittens um, has, a very interesting article, an economist, um, a very interesting article he's written about where the money goes in terms of federal funding and who's a lifter and indeed who's a leaner. Uh, We have some very interesting information uh, and we'd like to discuss it with you about what has happened in the New South Wales as well as the Victorian election. As most people realise when you get to funding of education in Australia, since the 1960s our Governments tend to think that they are being held to ransom by the Catholic Education Office and the Catholic Church, with, of course, the Protestant schools and others on their shirt tails. And it is taken for granted that you must not get them offside. Now, in the Victorian election, just in the week before, in fact, a few days before the election, the state election, Uh, Stephen Elder, I think it was, of the Catholic Education Office, uh, started to make noises about the Greens and how Catholic uh, parents mustn't vote for the Greens. Well, it was pointless because Greens got into not only the upper house but the lower house in New South Wales and in Victoria, first time in Victoria, which was very exciting. But up in New South Wales... Uh, It was exceedingly interesting. Not only uh, did the Catholic Education Office up there put pressure on the state government, there was in fact a reaction from Ross Gittins and from Adrian Piccoli, the Minister for Education himself. Uh, We'll play you a speech by Ross Gittins, who is the economics editor or an economics writer anyway, in the Sydney Morning Herald. He's Sorry, he is the economics editor. 
and uh, we'll play for him, for you, what he had to say. But um, I'll also read you something that was published in the Sydney Morning Herald. He is talking about the way uh, interest groups hold our politicians to ransom just before elections. And he starts off talking about the banks and the other financial institutions, which before the last federal election got the Labor government to promise not to make any more adverse changes to the taxation of superannuation for five years, and then persuaded the coalition to match Labor's promise during its first term. And a lot of promises have been broken since then, but not this one. Uh, and that's on the in the area, of course, of getting more money, more revenue into the federal treasury, which is in trouble. But historically, few groups, and this is Ross Gittins. This is not the dog saying this. I'll start again. Ross Gittins says, historically, few groups have pursued this tactic before elections more successfully than the Catholic systemic schools. If you are a poly, which would you choose? Risked being preached against uh, on the Sunday before election day or be photographed beside a beaming archbishop as you sign the deal? Recognising the Catholic's superior bargaining power, the other religious and independent schools tend to ride on their coats tails. Now please note again, this is not the dog saying this. This is Ross Gittins, the uh, economic editor of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. So he goes on to say, late last month, the Catholic Education Commission announced that in the New South Wales election campaign, it would, quote, play an advocacy role in the interests of students, parents and teachers in the Catholic education sector. And guess what? Catholic schools were leading the charge in asking for more public funds. And uh, he goes on to say how they were doing this. But he says the time has come to question all of this. And we'll now play to you what he said and how he argues it and what he thinks is actually happening in New South Wales. And you can uh, tie this over to Victoria, only the situation in Victoria is much, much worse because here Kevin Andrews and our, um, our Minister for Education before the election promised 25% of the uh, government school cost would go to Catholic schools and also a huge amount of money. I think it was um, $120 million was to go for capital expansion of the Catholic education sector and other schools as well. So over to Ross Gittins. When you contrast lifters and leaners and promise to end the age of entitlement, you're opening a can of worms. Who exactly is a lifter? Someone who contributes to the budget by paying taxes? That's all of us, even those of us who don't work. Who's a leaner? Someone who benefits from government spending? That's all of us too. And when you talk about entitlement, which entitlements do you mean? Those going to poor people on welfare? Rich people's entitlement to generous tax breaks? Or big businesses and other organisations that consider they're entitled to exemptions and assistance from taxpayers? In the New South Wales election campaign, the Catholic Education Commission 
is campaigning for much more generous capital grants from the state government to help it build new schools. I'm not sure it has a particularly good case, but if the state government feels it needs to assist non-government schools to expand, I'd rather see it giving straight capital grants than its previous policy of subsidising non-government schools' interest payments on their building projects. The interest subsidy scheme, which after 38 years was closed to new loans in 2006, was bad in many respects. The subsidy was set at a fixed percentage, which meant that when we finally got inflation back down in the mid-1990s and interest rates fell a long way, the subsidy covered a much higher proportion of schools' interest bill than it had before. The other variable determining the size of a school subsidy was the size of the amount it had borrowed. The more you borrowed, the bigger the subsidy. But the parents at some non-government schools have greater capacity to contribute towards the repayment of loans than others do. So it turned out the better-off private schools borrowed a lot more than the poorer schools did. Guess what? The interest subsidy scheme got more and more expensive as the years passed. That's why the state government closed it to new entrants in 2006 and switched to simple capital grants. But property loans extend for many years and eight years after the scheme closed, $43 million of the New South Wales government's total spending on non-government schools' capital needs of almost $55 million a year is going on old loans with very little left over for new capital grants. I'll leave it for you to decide what this tells us about the age of entitlement. That was an extract from Ross Gittins on the AGE website. Some very interesting ideas there about not just what we talked about, but the backroom deals, the interest payments over 30 years, which we as taxpayers are funding. Now, I'd like to actually, before we go any further, sort of reframe the debate in this whole public versus private school thing. We've had people like even Julia Gillard say it's an old argument and it's dead. It's not dead. Um, it's there in the choices that every parent makes. Every parent who has a child that's going to a school of any sort has to confront at some point the whole question of whether they're going to send their child to a public school or whether they're going to send their child to a private school. Now, Michelle Hamer has actually unpicked these ideas in a contemporary environment, and I think that the ideas that she puts forward are are worth listening to. Um, They're ideas of the now. The debate about whether you should send your child to a public school or a private school in days gone by would have related in large part in the Australian context to what religion you were. The Catholic Church was very interested in the 19th century and and through the 20th century, and some people say even today, in making sure that Catholic children went to Catholic schools for Catholic reasons, and there was a religious basis for it. But in this interesting article by Michelle Hamer... um, The question of religion is not brought up in very many cases when it comes to parents making decisions about whether they should send their child to a private school or a public school. 
Now, she says the question of private versus public education doesn't come with a clear answer these days for some parents, while others, of course, have strong views about which system is superior. Um, what, so what she's done is she's gone out and spoken to four individuals who are central players in our kids' experience at school, and she asked them, should you send your child to a public school or should you send your child to a private school? Now, she's spoken to, first of all, um, who I often talk about, the parents, the choices the parents make in terms of where they send their children. One parent, when asked, was told, well, when I told my then 15-year-old daughter Ruby, says this parent, she had to move to the local high school because we could no longer afford private school fees. She cried for days. Six years later, and set to begin her third year at university, she has a very different perspective. Ruby says, Public schools opened my eyes to the issues that were much larger than students at the private school seemed to be aware of. At the private school, I felt sheltered like I was in a bubble. Now, Ruby believed her Year 12 outcome would have been the same regardless of the school she attended. She said the state school teachers were great, very supportive. She said there were positives at each school and neither was better than the other. But from my perspective, she says, there is a huge difference. One school cost $15,000 a year and the other about $1,000 all up. This parent says, I sent my kids to private school because I wanted the very best for them. I wanted perfection. In the process, our family almost went bankrupt, and I'm certain the financial burden of trying to privately educate four children contributed to the breakdown of my marriage, she says. She says she lost sight of what mattered most. I didn't go for blazers and boater hats. The schools we chose were informal, child-centred and creative. It was my own mediocre experience in the state system and determination to give my children better that informed my decision. But I can't regret the years my child spent in an independent primary school in a farm-style environment, complete with roaming chooks, pigs and cows. It was a school we attended as a family. Parents cooking, gardening, sharing skills, making costumes, dressing up for book week and much more. Would my child have done as well at a state school? Probably. But sometimes measuring the experience is more about the journey than the final numbers on the page. And that parent was Michelle Hamer. Now, that is an experience that here at The Dogs we like to look at from the perspective of our children rather than my child. But I think the stories of my child are very interesting ones. Now, Michelle Hamer has some ideas about what is good and bad about education. But when we come back to the question of educating our children again and again and again, Children in state schools do just as well as children in private schools as, 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 as a nation thing. Now, I know many of you listeners will go, why are you giving airtime to this parent's opinion, this, this parent who has a positive opinion of private schools? Well, I think it's very important to understand what's going on. At no, at no point did Michelle talk about the religion involved, and the religious question was indeed the reason why children were segregated in the first place. It seems the segregation of children now has another dimension, a socioeconomic dimension, a, a dimension of segregation on, based on potential benefit. Or just parental preference. And this is actually not good enough as a policy for a nation's children, particularly a nation which is a democracy. When In fact, when we talk about education, we should be talking about the common wheel, the common good. It's not good enough, I believe, to base an education system of a nation 
on just parental preferences. Mm. Uh, what parents somehow think might be might be a positive for their children. Mm. What about a positive for all of our children and then we can take for granted the positive for her child? There's, um, it's not enough to be so selfish. Selfishness brings the nation down. Well, it's not even so much selfish. I actually personally believe that if a child wants to send their child to an independent school and have them educated separately from the rest of the population for reasons of personal belief or conscience or just because they want an extra special benefit for their child, um, I think, quite frankly, they should... It's not a question of allowing them to do it. Um, They can just go and do that. They can pay for it. They can just pay for it themselves. Um, taxpayers' money should be allocated to, to educational institutions that are offensive to none, that don't exclude on the basis of income. It's just very simple. Parental choice can, can happen all over the place. It's just it's not a subsidised choice. You can take your child out of the system and educate them separately, um, and many people do for all sorts of different reasons. It's just a question of whether that should be a taxpayer-funded choice. But as I said, there are more voices in this debate of public versus private. And the next voice is the voice of David, who is a state school teacher. Now, David, who is 42, actually accepted a 10,000 drop in annual income to move to the state secondary system um, a year ago after teaching at a Victorian private school for six years. He says, I found that private education was becoming too corporatised. He said, I saw the state schools were getting a bad rap and I felt strongly that I wanted to be able to give back to the community. Sounds like David has these things called values, if you ask me. He said, I became a teacher to do something that would be personally fulfilling. It's my aim to make a difference to kids and that's why I went back to teaching in public schools. When asked if he thought, is private education worth the money? He said, it actually really depends on the students. Some students need that extra push that they'll get in private schools, while others will flourish in the state system. He says, I've seen high-quality teachers in both private and state schools. The teachers at his current state schools, which is a non-selective secondary school, are inspiring and motivating. They have inspired himself, they have inspired David, to do great things as a teacher. Now, the biggest contrast David has encountered is with the facilities and the conditions. He says, I I had two students in my year 12 class at the private school. In the state system, I had 27, and that makes a huge difference. He said a small number of private school parents had very high expectations. He said, they say things like, I pay $25,000 a year. Why isn't my child doing better? Without maybe considering that they themselves could be doing to help their child. And that, that's David's point of view. And I think it's a very interesting one. I think it has some, it's just one person's opinion, but it's someone who's worked in both sectors. And it tallies with my own personal experience in terms of the difference in facilities between private schools and state schools. And it, I find it deeply upsetting. In fact, not more than upsetting, I, I find it deeply troubling that this is part of the assumption of education in Australia, that state schools are, of course, have rubbish facilities because somehow or other state schools are this free education system that shouldn't be funded properly and should just be a sort of very basic service, whereas private schools should have brilliant facilities 
because obviously the parents pay. Well, of course, that's just rubbish because the parents pay doesn't matter where they go. We all pay for the private education system to have its extraordinary facilities while the state system languages. And this is exactly what the principals have now just jacked up about. Yes, we pay taxes. I don't know about you, Robert. I pay a great deal of taxes and I resent enormously that my taxes are being paid for something which is not available for the common good. That's what I pay my taxes for Mm. happily. I'm happy to pay my taxes so long as they are used for the common good. Indeed. Well, this article goes on to get the opinions of a private school teacher. Um, Joanne, who's a private school teacher, she's taught in the private school system for 21 years but has sent her two children to state secondary schools and each of her children flourished there. She says, I teach at an independent primary school and parents often ask me if they think I should send their child to a private secondary school. And she always replies, I say, they certainly get great surroundings and facilities and probably a bit more support. But at the end of the day, the thing that absolutely matters the most is what happens at home. She says, I've been in the fortunate position of being able to watch children move through primary and secondary school and into adulthood. I often used to wonder at those who went to private secondary school would come out differently to those who went to public school. And what she has found over the years is that children who were inspired and motivated students remained so and did well, no matter what school they went to. And the same happened with kids in the middle and the lower ends. Basically, who they were and what their families were like mattered more than the school they went to. She says, a private school is certainly not going to make a child any more intelligent, that's for sure. Education is very important, but it's not the be-all and the end-all. She said the parents thought that by paying for an expensive education, they had then done their bit. Sometimes they expect us as teachers to do miraculous things, but when parents are interested and engaged, children will do better, no matter what school they go to. Oh, I think there's, I think there's such wisdom in that. I really do. <laughs> And I think if we gave every child the opportunity of, of good facilities, every child, then that will be fulfilled. Well, of course, I disagree with you a little bit there, Robert. I think that the state school system, by virtue of its being a public system, gives, in the end, much better values. And uh, that young lass who said that there were issues there that she could uh, relate to and she didn't feel so much in a bubble as she did in the private system was getting at a very fundamental truth. The public system will always be the better system and that is why it should be only publicly funded because it is open to all children. It is there for a democracy, for the common good. The private school is based upon the assumption that family is more important than the common good in the end and that way you get to an aristocracy or a plutocracy, not a democracy. That would be my argument there. Well, let's hear the voice of a principal, a principal of a state secondary school. In fact, he's retired now, but he was a principal and teacher in the secondary system, the state secondary system, for 40 years. And he said social conscience would never have allowed him to work in a private school. I agree with that. He says even within the state system, there are levels of schools. And as an educator, I found that the higher the socioeconomic status of the school, the more parents were likely to believe that their children were gifted or special and to refuse to allow them to be challenged socially beyond their comfort zone. 
Now, I just think that's very interesting perspective. He says, in other words, these parents would say, I want my kid to be brilliant, but I don't want them to be unhappy. He said, the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, some parents did not value education because they hadn't received a good education themselves. In the end, he said, the biggest determinant of how a child performs academically is their postcode, he says. A lot of teachers in the state system work their guts out to overcome this social disadvantage. He said the best state schools had strong curricula and strong curriculum delivery. He said it's important for parents to gauge what their schools value the most. If you want child, your child to get an education basics, then you see the school use those basics ex- to extend to the child. Some schools do a lot more airy-fairy extracurricular things like running their own radio stations and they focus on the shiny stuff and not the basics. I think that's a very interesting perspective. It sort of seems to be somewhat jaded. But in response to this discussion, and it's a very interesting article, um, there were some various comments. And one of the comments, which was um, put up by Cynical, um, it's some time ago now, mentioned why not mention the elephant in the room? (laughs) The elephant in the room is called networking. Every time the subject comes up, no one talks about the old school tie issue and the huge influence it has when prospective educators and employers are deciding on an applicant. He said it's a natural human trait or fault to select like-minded people who look the same as you. But then there's an interesting response to that, and I think it's a very interesting one. Once you leave your state... Once you leave, once you once you start to travel, old school tie doesn't mean anything. Anyone here in Victoria who wants to use the old school tie in New South Wales will find themselves going. Well, I don't care. It's what you could do that matters. And it's very much the case if somebody goes from the mainland down to the Tasmania or vice versa. Yes, you're quite right there, Robert. It's very amusing, isn't it? But for a young person trying to get in at the base level to a job of any sort. Um, there is a question. But once anybody's got a tertiary education, of course, it's completely irrelevant, isn't it? Absolutely, G. Actually, it's rather interesting. So we're talking about parents and how much they're going to pay and whether they should send their child to a private school or a public school. It's all rather interesting. But when we talk about the money, how much? How much money does it actually cost a parent to buy their way out of the system, even considering that our taxpayers' funds subsidise their choice to such a significant amount. A second house and a second car. Well, actually, actually, there's... Um, there's when they may not have got the first house. Well, they found out... Just, this is just median. This is just median work. And it's been done by the Australian Scholarships Group, who are a bunch of people who make money out of, um, out of, pe- of in, in insecure parents wanting to send their children to private schools. The Australian Scholarships Group has worked it out. And they released about a month ago now, and they predict the parents in Sydney will pay $541,275 to privately school their child from kinder to year 12, half a million dollars. Yes, well, they're they're wanting the grandparents to come up with that, aren't they? Because the parents can't. Um, It's probably worth pointing out, do you know what what the median, current median Australian house price is? (laughs) You can buy a house, a median. A mean, this, this is just the median house. This isn't a, this isn't a rubbish house um, for five hundred and eighty thousand dollars, which is around about the same amount of money. Now, parents in Melbourne, um, as opposed to Sydney, uh, fare marginally better. It will cost five hundred and two thousand um, dollars by the time their child graduates. 
They're not taking inflation into account here, are they? Or rising house prices, I suppose. Um, But it's rising. Um, In fact, it is rising. In fact, private school fees, even though they're so heavily subsidised and have continued to be so... In fact, wasn't that the rationale that John Howard used back in 2000? I can remember David Kemp telling us that these fees were all going to come down somehow miraculously without um, acknowledging the fact that the whole point of having fees is to keep the riffraff out. Yeah, so um, the fees are rising between 2013 and 2014 at a rate of 5% per annum. The inflation rate's 2.2, and I'll tell you what, 5%. You'd be lucky if you can get that if you put investment in the bank. Our fees have also blown out at public and Catholic schools, where the average cost of education over the past decade um, has been produced. Now, it is, in fact, cheaper to send your child to a Catholic school than it is to a high-fee-paying independent school. There is no question about that. But for a child born in 2015, the public education bill, if you send your child even these days to a public school, will average out at around about $64,000 from kinder to year 12. Shocking. Absolutely. For a systemic or Catholic school, it's tipped to be well more than twice that, about a quarter of a million dollars. Not half a million, a quarter of a million dollars. By 2032, the cost of a year 12 placement in a private school is predicted to be $58,722 per year which is almost double the current annual tuition fee. Um, then that, that, that's what's happening at the moment. If things continue to rise at 5% a year. And if they uh, start um, taxing the superannuation funds and so on, the grandparents will be looking uh, to, to opt out of uh, doing anything for their grandchildren's education, I would think. So parents should be doing these figures. Uh, they should be thinking very, very carefully and uh, sticking with the state school system just on a purely pragmatic basis and they should be fighting for it too indeed well and of course we've got more people so we need more schools and the state yes. government is trying to outsource that process apart yes. from anything else as well yes. Jean. It's, it's all getting a bit stupid um, I'd like to refer historically here to um, a situation which we now have in Australia there are lots and lots of children being born we have got a population explosion. Now, this happened after the war, and there were very, very few uh, state schools, uh, secondary schools, particularly in Queensland. But when the baby boomers hit the secondary area, not even Queensland could hold back the demand for further education, and they had to go into secondary education, even though 90% of the children of the previous generations had never been inside a secondary school. We're now getting to that situation throughout Australia, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria. There are large numbers of parents who are not wealthy, some of whom don't even have jobs, certainly not two jobs in the family, who are having children and who are expecting those children to have have a free, secular and universal education at both the primary and secondary level. Our governments are going to have to look in the end to not just parental choice but the needs of the children. The children are there and they're going to be there and they're going to be at the school gates and they're not going to be going into private school gates because those parents will not have the money to subsidise, because that's what they're doing, uh, private, uh, private um, uh, profit-making, actually, of education. 
it just is not going to happen. It hasn't happened in Australia before and it's not likely to happen now. At a certain point, there'll be too many parents who have too many children who want a public school education because it will be the only kind of education that is a possibility. And we will have to go back and rethink that, in fact, Education should not be a private matter. It is a public matter. It is a public matter which should have sole public funding. It's happened before. It will happen again. Sit back and watch. Yes, Jean, they do have big problems when you start to look at the demographics because here in Victoria we have an example of an education system that has failed, just failed. It's got to the point where the Victorian TAFE system is now... It's not even in crisis. It's beyond that. In fact, it's such a mess. How did it get into this mess? Because we're dealing with ideologues who believed in this thing called, for some reason, private is better when public is always better. Uh, the private system has always been dependent upon the health of the public system. And our public system has served us so well. And in many cases, in most cases, in fact, with our teachers and our schools, it is still serving us exceptionally well but it is being plundered. Well, more than plundered, because the Victorian Training Market Report has just come out, and enrolments in TAFE in Victoria are down 33%. And you go, oh, that's going to save the government money. If you've got fewer people getting educated, that's going to save the government money. Wouldn't that be a good thing? Oh, what a foolish perspective. With the level of youth unemployment... Victorian TAFE enrolments are down 30%. The system has failed... In fact, the Victorian government subsidised TAFE enrolments have dropped by that amount. Now, the Victorian Training Market Report said there was an auto an 18% drop in the numbers of 15 to 19-year-olds enrolled in government-funded training. They're just not turning up. Why aren't they turning up? Because and, they're charging fees that people can't afford. And also, the number of students in apprenticeships and traineeships was down 40% since 2012 when the former Napthine government cut TAFE funding by $300 million. Now, the Training and Skills Minister, Stephen Herbert, said the system had failed. It, it has failed. It's just gone. It's, it, it's beyond crisis. It's just gone. Why did this happen? Now, it actually comes at a time, the current minister is saying, when the state has a massive youth unemployment and the training system really should be there to help these young people get jobs. But in fact, it's just failed. More vulnerable Victorians are missing out, with fewer regional, disabled and Aboriginal students are enrolling as well. He says these groups are people who desperately need to get a leg up to get a job, and they're not getting it. But why? And the answer is very simple, because almost daily we hear reports of educational rorts going on, of educational providers going broke, of courses being closed, and also of courses being outsourced to sub-sub-subcontractors. Because if you want to get an education in a TAFE college today, you will have, by definition, lost confidence in it. Private training organisations in Victoria have a 56% share of all government-subsidised enrolments in 2014. Now, this is taxpayers' money that's going to private organisers, private organisations which are supposed to be educating and they're not, and they're doing it so badly, people are now staying away because they're afraid. They're afraid they're just going to waste their money on some rubbish course. And the only courses that are available, of course, are the private ones. Now, the share held by TAFEs, that this is government-run organisations, was 
55%. So a quarter of all the TAFE training has actually been done by government-run and responsible organisations, not private ones. Now, the Andrews government, I suppose, has just have to do something because this is, in fact, a crisis, and they've established a $320 million TAFE rescue fund. They're putting the money back in that Napthone took out. And TAS, the former Holmes Glen founder, founder Bruce McKenzie, with reviewing the Victorian vocational education and training system. It's very simple. It doesn't need reviewing. It's broken, so you build a new one. You build a new one that is firstly accountable, that is secondly effective, and is thirdly efficient. Because a public one. A public one. That is the only way you can run a TAFE system because it is for public benefit. Because at the moment we are generating a skills gap which it, it's there. It's just there. In, in the future there will be people that won't have the training that could have had it now. It's going to be a generational problem so they better get onto it pretty quick. Well I think that they can thank Mr Dixon from the Catholic Education Office who was the Minister for Education in the Napathon Government for that. Uh, but, of course, this problem goes back to the 1980s, Robert, when they started uh, interminable uh, restructures of the TAFE system and the technical system. Uh, I know this because I was actually there and worked in the TAFE system in, in Nauru House. And we had a TAFE system which was second to none and with a lot of very, very good teachers, particularly the tradies. And it has been restructured again and again and again and now it has been, there have been very real attempts to privatise it. And the result is what we should have known and what we found out in the 19th century, private is not better than public, private does not do the job and cannot do the job and will not do the job and does not want to do the job of educating every child. They are there to select and to make, in the case of the TAFE sector, profits. Indeed. You've been listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR, 855 on the AM dial and podcast. Um, if you're interested in what we've been speaking about, um, you can obviously listen to the podcast again or contact us and see what we're doing on our website, which is at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until next week, it's bye for now. saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me, says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead, I never died, says he, I never died, says he, in Salt Lake City, Joe, says I, him standing by my bed They framed you on a murder charge Says Joe, but I'm dead Says Joe, but I'm dead The copper bosses killed you, Joe They shot you, Joe, says I Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe, I didn't die, says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as 
smiling with his eyes Says Joe what they can never kill Went on to organize Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find your hill I dreamed I saw your hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe You're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he I never died, says he